ओम सहना वबतु सहनो बुनक्तु सहवीर्यम करवाभाय तेजस्पनावदि तमस्तु मा विद्विशावहाय ओम शांति 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 ओम मै ब्रह्मन प्रोटेक्टस ऑल मै नरेशस ऑल मै वी वर्क टुगेदर विथ ग्रेट एनर्जी May our study be vigorous and fruitful. May love and harmony dwell amongst us all. Om peace, peace, peace be unto us all. I was speaking about Denny and then I slipped into the monologue here. Monologue. Love is a dialogue. It can be a monologue too, but it's a, it's a, Today's lecture is on two stages of Vedic devotion because there's really, life goes on in two ways. Everybody is loving and evolving and changing and transforming and we're going to look at that. The fact that everything is a compulsion to expand and grow. We have no choice because we're rooted in the divine. So we have no choice but grow and expand. But ultimately the first stage of devotion is found within life in general, the whole spectrum of evolution in general. And the final stage is really the, the, the this religious uh, organizations of the world that offer up disciplines and worships and images and uh, music and liturgy. And all of this is another way of accessing a larger symbol. Because we'll see a larger symbol, a symbol that um, changes our lives in a very profound way. See, life is, full, is very symbolic. No doubt we know a lot of things, but what drives us are not the things we know, as we know, as we know uh, that to be happening in our lives. In other words, no matter what we accomplish in this world, it's never enough. Something that I always talk, often talk about. It's never enough, and in the present moment, once we've accomplished the things we were striving for, we look around and we pretty much feel like we're in the same place we were before. <laughs> sort of. We may be a little stronger, a little more secure, maybe a little more power and a little more peace has entered into our lives, and so we certainly wouldn't want to go back. But we're still in the nagging present, that nagging present that does not really address who we are, we what to be. And the world offers up to, for all of us symbols, symbolic opportunities, whether it's uh, architecture or, or, uh, or a musician or boxing or whatever it is, whoever we may be, the world is a playing field and we can reach out to it and things take on symbolic power for us. And then we reach out into the world to fulfill those symbols. I want to be the best boxer ever. See? And there are those symbols out there, and well, they're in my mind, but the symbol rises up. If I can only accomplish that and be number one in the world, a heavyweight champion, then I'll be happy. I'll have fulfilled myself. So I work and work and work, and years pass, and one day I'm there in the ring fighting for the heavyweight championship, and I knock my opponent out, and suddenly everybody says, rah, 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 and the whole place goes crazy, and I lift my hands above my head, and I'm very, very proud and happy for about a day or two. <laughs> and then I have to look around and see the world as it is again. Now, I could feed off of that, and the world will help me feed off of it, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a lie, you see. In other words, I'm resting in something that isn't really going to feed me beyond the support I get from the people around me. 
And as I get older, I pass into the background, and then it really strikes me that, that I'm of no real significance. That that symbol that I was trying to embody, whether it had been that or architecture, like I say, or anthropology, whatever, that achievement and that accomplishment after I've done it doesn't satisfy me. So the symbolic form is always there in the universe, and when we go to the religions, as we'll see here, what the religions offer us are the top symbols. Those symbols that when we embrace and continually attempt to internalize them, uh, start to change our lives in the most radical ways, and uh, we, we eventually start to see that that meaning that we were looking for through all these other sojourns that we were passing through, and we we're passing through now, culminates and achieves a full satisfaction when we, we step into that world of the divine. So whether the symbol is Christ or Buddha or whatever it may be, see, these, these uh, images and these symbols of transformation that go on throughout life are always calling to us, and it's, but it's this ultimate symbol that's really behind it all. And so eventually everybody gets in accord, falls into line with this higher ideal. Ultimately, everybody has to get behind a Christ or a Buddha or a Muhammad or uh, whatever it may be, a Moses, whatever it may be, in order to uh, and use the symbols of that world in order to change their lives in the most profound way. It calls to us ultimately. The ordinary symbols of the world fail us. So ultimately, no matter how much we embrace them and accomplish them and they fall out of the symbolic power, once you're a great musician, musician, it's no longer symbolic power. Now you're high on maybe your music, but you've lost the symbolic power to it. It takes on another flavor, and it becomes signs. The, the, the guitar, you know, it's a sign. You know how to work it. You know how to play it. You know how to play the chords. You know how to do the melody, see? You become a magician with it, but it's not enough. Step down off of the stage, and you're in misery. Go behind stage after the applause, and you need to smoke something or take something, inject something, to keep that high. Because you are an extraordinary person. The divine is working through you. Anybody that achieves something great, Ramakrishna said, uh, has that divine in them. It's manifesting through their lives. It is. It is. They can step into a larger framework and in that larger framework, these people do magic with the world. And that's why all these people are up there on the top, when they get to the top. They're able to do extraordinary things. I mean, in the field, the most obvious I, I always often draw from are musicians or entertainers, actors. They're actors and then they're actors, you know. And, uh, and the actors really move you. They, they carry their, pre their presence and they inhibit, inhabit a role. <laughs> they can inhibit a role too. <laughs> but they inhabit a role and which is transforming and they step out into the into the before the cameras and it's all recorded and then you get yourself an extraordinary movie. They're all over the place. But we're going to talk about the evolution of God because really what we're talking about today with these signs and symbols and how humanity is opening out is that ultimately it's, it's directional. Everything is directional. What I mean is no matter what you achieve in this world, it falls away, but then you're going to go on to something larger and more inclusive. It never goes backwards. 
The structuralists found this out. Structuralism is a form of study of the human mind and how it categorizes itself, see? And so they've always found that the mind moves forward. It doesn't go backwards. It's because the divine is there, and no matter what we do, we, it doesn't satisfy us, and we always have to have higher horizons. And the God of each age changes, by the way, doesn't it? Look at the past. Look at how the God of the past is no longer the God of the, the gods of the past. And now we have a lot of movies out there in medieval societies, on medieval societies, and the warring gods and knives and thing. They throw things. Everybody's very big and strong and very awesome, right? And everybody's mean and tough. That's, that doesn't ha happen anymore, really. I don't know why we're doing that. It's desperation. Because our idea of God, we're rejecting. We've, God as we've known him through Christianity and all these other traditions is falling away. So I will, uh, and Vekananda, the founder of this movement, was an utter genius, of course, to say the least. He's the father of American, uh, American spirituality, actually. He's the father of American spirituality. It's through him that America will find its orientation in the world and find its roots and move forward. You can't do it with the old ones, not because they're not good, I, we approve, I love uh, all of the religions that exist, but they're rooted in history and they're narrow. And what Vekadana says, and now I'll go on to the lecture itself, two stages in Vedic evolution, addressing this problem or this issue or this fact of, the, of God. The great mistake, he says, is in recognizing the evolution of the worshipers while not acknowledging the evolution of the worshipped. God isn't credited with the advance of his devotee, that his devotees have made. That's to say, as you and I, as representing ideas, have grown, so these gods have also grown as representing ideas. This may seem somewhat strange that God can grow. He can't. God is unchangeable. In the same sense, the real individual never grows. But humanity's ideas of God are constantly changing and expanding. We're always compelled to love in larger ways. And in the world comes together today, we're thrown into a global community. We have no choice but to love in the biggest way. We have no choice but to keep our hearts in our faith. We keep our hearts open to all religions and really embrace them. Mysterious as that seems for many. That's why the Vedanta, we honor Ramakrishna to say the least, because he inhibited, inhabited, absorbed, <laughs> and transcended through all the religions of the world. Literally did this. Literally had the power to do this. He was such an innocent, open, unimaginably pure mind that no matter what he embraced spiritually, he would fall into a non-dual, up into higher ecstasies and then a non-dual state. He did it with Christianity, Islam. He did it through all the religions of India, which are very diverse and very, very alien to one another very often. They hold, they consider themselves to be the best and the others bad. It's, it happens everywhere. And uh, so he went through all these religions and fell into ecstatic high, ecstatic moods and, uh, re and, and insisted. And he is now really the flavor of the age. We don't yet, yet know it because India is holding on to him. See, India won't let go of him. They think that he's the, the perfect Hindu of all Hindus. But he's really, India doesn't know its own stature and potential. 
doesn't know its own stature and potential. Ramakrishna is the, is the uh, uh, prototype of, of, of modern humanity. He's the prototype of modern humanity because his heart is open to everything. And through him, if you meditate on him, I'm not asking you to, meditate on anything you want, it's quite all right with Vedanta because it's always a symbol for that ultimate unity behind. But Ramakrishna has this strange way of liberating your consciousness. He's a very strange man, this, this Ramakrishna. You meditate on this crazy man. You see, he's crazy as can be because there are no boundaries to that mind. Crazy in the finest way, see. Uh, he'll touch you in every way. And my suspicion is Ramakrishna, you meditate on him for a while and you start really linking up to him and he'll put you in touch with who you really are and you just didn't know it. In other words, you're a Christian. Suddenly, wow, uh, I, I'm into Krishna or I'm into Buddha or something else has entered into my mind that wasn't there before. I think he, when you meditate on this man, he has as an incarnation, it's not just love, but your own archetypes will wake up inside of you. Okay? And so this is what Vekinan is talking about. The humanity's idea of God are constantly changing and expanding, but not God, not the truth. All these signs and symbols that we have are always shifting and changing as our minds adjust. This is how it's going on. It's, it's self-evident. See, the beauty of Vedanta is, is it's self-evident. You don't have to prove it. I don't have to in threaten you into believing this. I don't have to bully you into believing this. It's self-evident. So, it's, it can be pretty much summarized by Clarence Darrow. He's a well-known trial lawyer at the last century. He says, I don't believe in God because I don't believe in Mother Goose. So this is the attitude of a lot of the scientists and a lot of the intellectuals. I don't believe in Mother Goose and God, this notion of God is no more real than Mother Goose. Well, we say it's true that God is an intellectual aspect of our evolving love and consciousness, but there is a divine response from, very on, from on high. Christ is there in the subtle realm. Ramakrishna, Krishna, whatever you want to use as an image, whatever, is there in the causal realm. And these things can descend into the, gross, into the gross world, into your heart and mind and life on a subtle plane as well. So we're not denying the existence of these great heroes of spirituality, all of them. All I want to see in the Vedanta is to diversify it, really make it very, very big. As I speak to everybody about who gets to know me, they hear the same this same rant from me. But eventually, it's going to, Vedanta is going to have to be very big, and you're going to have to honor all of the religions, and you're going to have to walk through the big heart and, uh, and allow all these things back into your consciousness. But it's because of him. He's got to be there someplace saying it's okay. And then you'll discover yourself in the process. But in that symbolic effort to move back into something larger, ultimately, you're going to be intuiting your own higher nature which we'll read about here too. And that is the real transforming presence. Not Christ only, but Christ shining with that ultimate unity, shining through Christ's body and light and life and presence in your life. Suddenly you have the capacity, the power to love in a way that you couldn't do before. See? So they enter into our lives and we could do it that way and our lives change or we struggle ourselves and it works that way as well. So. Foundations, they all have theological foundations, the religions. 
falling under scientific scrutiny, creation theories, the virgin birth, all these things are being put to question. Creation theories, the parting of the seas, all of these things, it goes on endlessly because every religion has its myths. That's what is a snake holding up the world or whatever it is, some sort of, these things no longer function in the modern world, see. So it's all been put to question and everybody's denying it and the kids, young people today are just wandering freely and they're lost, they're lost. We say the symbols are good, but, but, but don't take, they're just a medium, we'll see as we go on. Anyway, so everything is challenging traditional metaphysics. Every religion has theological foundations and they're breaking down under scientific scrutiny. But when we read the testimonies of great spiritual souls the world over, all of them, they heartily and with great ecstasy share with humanity uh, this wonderful, rapturous place they've stepped into that has changed their lives radically and now they're in a space, a place of immortality and bliss and joy and love and it's not just a testimonial, their lives are that. They change people around them. They're in such a high altered state that the world around them is honored and blessed, quietly or obviously, by the presence of these souls. Because every time they pull back into this, it charges the atmosphere around them and the world around them. We're all global, as we'll see. And we're all rooted in one, or one another. We're not separate from one another at the causal level. Subtle, we step out into it as Jews, as Christians, as Muslims, as Buddhists. We step out into the world as Hindus. We step out into the world as distinct individuals. But when you get back to the causal roots of all of that, it's the divine working through it all, the one unity. So that's what we're talking about this morning. And ultimately, this transforming relationship with God. As Denny's beautiful song captured quietude, the silence, see? that peace that we all need, you really need it. Why do you need it? Because God asks us to, God wants us to, no, no. Because it'll give you strength. It'll make you strong. It will give you a serenity and a peace and an inner strength that you can't get on your own ego strength. Turn to that symbol, ultimately you'll see that your ego is not you. As your ego ripens, you'll see that behind your ego and all of its attempts is the divine, your own higher nature. Strength is that. It's based on our own higher nature and resting in that. Right? Yes. <laughs> it's out there. This is nothing new. It's all about the fundamental principle of unity. How this diversity of religions, this is coming out now. I'm not saying anything new. It's the idea of Ishwara, the sum total of consciousness, or the collective causal body in the largest sense. So they're collective perspectives and they're evolving and Ishwara takes on new qualities, Ishwara or God. It's a very important thing to understand this though, see. So that our interpretations of God are changing now. The warring gods no longer work. The loving God of a certain section of the world no longer works. Now love is expanding. Truth is expanding, humanity's minds are expanding, and we're all acknowledging this ultimate truth behind that we're all compelled to acknowledge. Principles, principles, principles. It's all about principles. Okay? You can't go to personalities anymore. Very dangerous. Principles, practices, processes, and personalities. 
See, he's a good, safe personality, Ramakrishna, because really, I'm not against trying to sell him. They're all good. But when you meditate on him, he really has no agenda with you. He just honors you and wants to empower you. He <clears throat> isn't interested in uh, converting you to him and his. You'll do that yourself, as Christ was caught up in that, people caught up in that relationship with Christ because, and, and Muhammad and the message, it caught up a lot of people. It just strikes the culture of a time, see, and people are swept up in that. So, I mean, I, I, he said himself, he'll be in the hearts of all beings in the future. And, and it's just that he's, we're going to have to liberate him. We're going to have to liberate him from Hinduism and put him into globalism. And Hinduism is fine. It's a beautiful. It's the beautiful religion, one of the beautiful most in many ways. But in order to get him out there, you've got to globalize Ramakrishna. You see, so that's going to have to happen. That shift will take place, and then India will wake up to its own potential as well. India will suddenly be startled, and then wake up to the enormous power it has and the enormous contributions it's given to the world. This is an Indian, this is, this is an Indian thing, old Vedic th ideas, you see. It's not, this doesn't come out of the West, this comes out of India. So we see the evolution of this totality of consciousness as we, we ingest more and more liberal thoughts and our perspectives are growing, see. So the worship has to grow in depth too. It's always, um, Life is always impacting and underlying uh, this, the, the ground unconscious. And as mind opens up, as we adjust to each other in larger ways, the, the, um, uh, this ultimate transcendent unity manifests more and more, this transcendent love. The ability to love, the ability to be, what is love? He said, I can't love. I have no power to love. I'm loveless in my life. Well, you love people, of course. We all know we love people. But love is really the kindest and the quietest and the most gentle form is just giving attention to something over and over and over and over again. And when you keep doing that, you, it shows that you love it. Play the guitar. Eventually, it's, at first it's boring. Eventually, it's exciting. You fall in love with it. Ooh, you can't let go of it. Oh, there he is again with his guitar. <laughs> Pushing his agenda with a guitar. But he knows he's a magician and he gets out there and everybody falls into rapture with him. So, fundamental unity explains the diversity of religions. This is how the evolution and the evolution of consciousness itself. So, what I want to show here is how Jews, Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, Sikhs, um, uh, 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 all the secular, our secular lives work out through these, this ultimate. Uh, unity or, or oneness. It holds true everywhere. Again, I'm not saying anything, but I'm giving an intellectual form and, and trying to encourage the Vedanta, which is what, which will eventually we'll do, is to really take a broad universal stand with staying with the principles and not getting into personalities and not getting into history and culture. It's a very delicate thing. I, I, I always say India will be honored down through history. It does, has done, it is really foundational. It is the mother spiritual ode of the world. But it's got to be seen on our terms. I often tell people, listen, I will love India, but on my terms, not India's terms. See, 
It's a very, you can't love somebody because they want you to. You love me, you love me, you're going to love me. We all want to do that. But you can't get people to love you that way. They've got to wake up to your brilliance and your beauty and your strength and your wisdom. And then if it's there, you're going to have a relationship and you're going to fall in love. But it comes out of you. You can't be forced into anything. And everybody knows that now regarding all the religions, see? So it's shifting and changing. And uh, between uh, superficial diversity and uh, growing thoughts and ideas, let me just read a little, a little thing about, I don't even know if this is relevant to the talk, but it's very, very important. Make it uncovered so much, or maybe, I, well, I'll do a steward and then move on. The aggregate of many individuals, individuals is called samasti, the whole. And each individual is called vyasti, or part. You and I, each is vyasti. We're parts, see, of a, sama, of a society, samasti. You and I, animals, birds, worms, insects, trees, a creeper, the earth, the planet, a star, each is a vyasti while this universe is samasti. It's a new science that's coming up, by the way, and it's something that curiously Vivekananda understood at the turn of the last, last century. So he says, while this universe is samasti, which is called Virat, Ranigarva, or Ishwara, in Vedanta, and Brahma, Vishnu, and Devi in the Puranas. So, Systems within systems, love within love. It's the same love, it's the same primal unity, irresistibly working throughout creation, causing all this bonding, and then a breaking out into larger bondings. That's what we've been talking about. See, whenever you do bond with something and you get a, have a love affair with your, your guitar, or as an accountant with accounting, or whatever it may be, you, 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 you bond with it, and you broaden. Uh, what am I saying here? <laughs> no, but you, you bond and you broaden. But that, in that act of broadening and owning it, it's never enough. That urge in love, that urge to love, always surpasses our present conditions. Love is really a here and now experience. Now, if you can put passion into it, you're a saint. You're a saint. You're an extraordinary person. Monks tend to love in a quiet way, a gentle way, unless they want to be saints. And then they get to learn how to go crazy. And that's kind of awkward in a world where you're not allowed to be crazy too much. But Ramakrishna was crazy. He was passionate. And he had passionate feels about, feelings about. And that's where devotional exercises, where diversity in Vedanta is so astounding, is that we're given, encouraged uh, for diversity of, of, uh, uh, in, in the emotions and everything. So, broadening our minds. Love is like something like the clouds that were in the sky before the sun came out. Clouds. You can't touch the clouds, but you feel the rain and now how, know how glad the flowers and the thirsty earth are to have it after a hot day. You cannot touch love either, but you feel the sweetness that it pours into everything. Without love, you would not be happy or want to play. Annie Sullivan. So, that's the urge opening out into a primal unity. This is what we're, what we're talking about. It's endemic to life, oneness, unity. Always uh, 
We're all beings with all the beings within creation. Now, this is a unique feature of Vedanta. Vedanta introduced it. It was maybe out there, but all beings are compelled to unify, unify, unify. It's another subject. How that works? How is it that everything is unifying and evolving and growing? What's the medium? The environment? You know, the phys the the, 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 the intellectuals call it the ontology of it. You see, the material, the stuff out of which it's made. You see. And, and uh, so how is it all made? How is it, what is it that's made that from which we're evolving? Okay. That's a subject in itself. But Franklin Jones, love doesn't make the world go round. Love is what makes the ride worthwhile. And it's true. We have to fall in love with things. Uh, I'm going to go to intellectual generosity. See, we're all compelled to assume larger perspectives of life. That's what I was talking about here. And that's the important thing about this Vedic devotion, is it because it speaks about this underlying unity and freedom. See, whenever you reach out, and I'll do this again, perhaps, whenever you reach out to the world, you have to first break free of your past. You have to say, I'm going to get out of this. I'm not happy where I'm at. Now, you do that through education, generally. We're going to have to ingest symbols and then figure out all the signs that are surrounding those symbols. We ingest all that and then we open out into a... But you've got to first of all say, I'm free, darn it. This unity is nice, the present state of consciousness, but I want something larger. I want to be a little larger than a, a great musician. You see, I want to get out of this boundary. It's okay and I'm happy, I'm glad I'm here and I've grown, but I want something more. So there's always an act of freedom. See, there. anyway, I'm just going to show you briefly, mention briefly, there are three aspects to, to transcendence, reality, to Brahman, to God, to truth. It's ever free. This is John Dobson's model. It's omnipresent and never changes. But you see, we're capturing those three qualities in our lives, it's all the three kunas, in fragments. So we're always moving out of our existing freedom and unity into another one. It's very Hegelian, Hegel, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. We're always moving out and breaking free of our present circumstances because it's never enough. So freedom is there. But with the freedom, you can't just be free and walk around with your chest pushed out, you see a man, with a gun in your hand or something. That's not freedom. Free, it's not going to work, of course. So these movies in the theaters today, everybody is free. The hero, you know, the heroes are all running around killing everybody. And they're supposedly free. No, freedom comes in love. When you're really loving, when every time you move out into a larger level of love, you're more free. That's the secret. So it's true with knowledge as well. Perspect, cognitive perspectives. They're always combining with this urge towards freedom. It's giving our mind it's an amazing power. You see, that's all about epistemology. Vedanta takes care of everything. Epistemology, the laws and the limits and boundaries of perception. How do we perceive? Knowledge, knowledge. How, what's the knowledge in our minds and how is it evolving? It's always around this ultimate freedom breaking out, finding a new unity. Okay, I've studied so much of the guitar, it's not finished yet. So I want a larger one. So I go back into the guitar and I move up through levels of what's called samadhi. And I get to a place where I'm an utter genius. I mean, so everybody just stands in awe before me because I just strum the thing and it comes alive. 
and I just tap on it and do a few things and everybody falls and is mesmerized because of the powers I've developed. So the mind is always doing that and when it gets up to higher and higher unities in any field, you talk about geniuses, we talk about geniuses. They know so much about their field that they just have to, she just has to strum that guitar one or two times and you, you know there's somebody there that, 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 that you, that, uh, that, that's very much present there and you don't know who it is. So unity is always compelling everything. Love, this Vedic idea of love, see, this Vedic idea of love is always there, the sense of larger, either love or you fall into a flight, fight syndrome, don't we? If you can't love, you run away until you repair and recover and then you try to come back with the love for that situation so that you can be bigger than it, right? Isn't that what we do? See, I'm not arguing or threatening or anything. Vedanta, you don't have to. It's what we do. One day, Sunday morning, the preacher knows little Wally was staring at one of the plaques that hung in the foyer of the church. It was covered with names and small American flags. They were mounted on, which were mounted on either side of the, of the, uh, of the plaque. The seven-year-old uh, had been staring at the plaque for some time, so the preacher walked up, stood by the little boy, and quietly said, Good morning, Wally. Good morning, preacher, replied the boy, still focused on the plaque. Preacher, what is this? Well, son, it's a memorial to all the young men and women who died when in the service. Soberly, they stood together, staring at the plaque. Little Willie's voice was barely audible when he asked, which service, 9.45 or 11 o'clock? <laughs> All the men and women, the young men, died in service. <laughs> Which service? <laughs> Little Wally, nine years old, didn't understand what this meant, you see. But with knowledge goes. He suddenly was informed of a new thing, a world. So we always have falling in love with objects, with various objects in the world, desperately trying to be at one with endless things. Through, first through symbolic power, which eventually gives way to understanding. And as understanding grows, it becomes signs. No longer is there a symbolic power there. Now it's a sign of relationship. The guitar player can play, and it's a sign for him now. It's no longer a symbol. Now, through the guitar, he takes on new symbols. The people in the world, they have symbolic power. I'm getting to play at the president's mansion at the White House. That's symbolic power. See, now with that, he can move out into other things, and, and as a greatly accomplished person, move out into the world and uh, attack and, and ingest and embrace and uh, go where all the symbol real symbolic power is now. See? So he goes everywhere and enjoys all of this. And eventually that symbolic power dies. God, the president is terrible. See? Whatever president it may be, we've had a bunch of them. I, you know, I mean, that was not what I expected, or it was, it was, but you know, I, I saw the limitations. The White House isn't as big as I thought it was. You know, it's not as fun or as exciting as I thought it was. So we're always shifting and changing in that way. See, do we go crazy with misplaced love? No, if we're patient, we grow in love and appreciation. Our mind opens out. 
But if we fail at love, our mind closes down. Henny Youngman, some of you perhaps remember him. I've been in love with the same woman for 41 years. If my wife finds out, she'll kill me. <laughs> it's like that, you see. We love, we're developing a taste for whatever it is, studying physics. We start and we grow and we expand. This is it, at one minute with everything. This is love. Giving our attention, being present, and that's an act of love. If you don't like something, you walk away from it. You don't love it. But the beginning, you kind of intuit, that's something I want to do. So you start focusing in terms of love, unity. That's the way it works. Realization, awakening, opening up runs throughout life. This is why, because the infinite, the undivided, and the unchanging is there compelling us. What else compels you? See, Sankhya is a genius uh, model of evolution. It's just that it needs to be linked up with Advoita. And when you mix the two systems, as Vekanan did, it's magnificent. Because you see, we're always reaching out, awakening and opening up. Because, again, and it's good to remind ourselves, we're infinite and we're omnipresent. Your essence is omnipresent. You're everywhere. And you're, you're boundless. You're free. Nobody can contain you. But that's in your spiritual essence. And because of that, you are unchanging. So we're always readjusting our minds and bodies are. But really, we get to a place in our evolution when we embrace religious symbolic power. We can look at the great symbols and in just those, and we get to a place where we realize, I've never been going anywhere. I've been infinite, undivided, and changing. It was my mind, see, my mind. We never say, I am a mind. We say, my mind. And my body, that's shifting and changing. This mind and body has been shifting and changing all of this time. Okay? Life after life after life. Shifting, adjusting, changing, becoming more integrated, more integrated, more open. Smaller realizations moving in the direction of an ultimate realization. That's what's going on. Vivekananda. The self, the Atman, is by its own nature pure. Your own nature, your higher nature is pure. Okay, it's, it's standard. I, uh, but it's good to hear it again and again. It's the same existence that's reflecting itself in the lowest form. See, we're catching the reflections of our own higher nature. It's a weird thing. You can't understand this until, until the mind opens up a little. That you're, <laughs> It seems contradictory, and we can't grasp it in a way. It, but we're, we're catching reflections of our own higher nature. You are that. Thou art that. But we identify with our mind and our body so we don't see that we're that. And that we're actually catching our, our own essence through our mind and we're misidentifying ourselves. It's a whole process of superimposition. Okay. It's the same reflecting itself in the lowest worm to the highest, most perfect being. The whole universe is a unity, one existence physically, mentally, morally, and spiritually. We're looking at this one existence in different forms and creating all these images on it. 
It's a big thing now with, with uh, modern, modern um, linguistics and whatnot, and they have all these theories now, which are very, they kind of knew this. At the turn of the century, these people were all m making, preaching their thing, turn of the 19th, 20th century. Into the 20, 1900s, I mean, no, I'm sorry, let's see, 1800s, the end of the 1800s and the early 1900s. They were all working this out, and I'm quite astounding, astounded now that all the intellectuals of the time were back there, and they set this in motion, which has been going on in the 20th century, but it was all back there that a lot of it uh, was developed. So Vekinand was looking at this and understanding it, and he knew the direction of the West. We're looking at this existence from different forms of creating all these images on it. To those who are limited themselves to the conditions of humans, it appears as a human world. Again, don't think this is Vekinanda or just Vedanta and Maya. This is what good linguistics and modern epistemology says. Kant and all of these people. See? But Vekinanda knew it, but he put the Advaita thing onto it as well, and so it becomes a very solid system. See, but not, we're, not, I'm not to, we're not talking about a system that's foreign to academia. This is very, very important. They're working on all this. Okay? And they've been working on it, and they're in a quagmire. And it's Vekinand who's actually worked a lot, most of it out. To the being who is on a higher plane, it may seem like heaven, but there's one soul in the universe, not two. It neither comes nor goes. We neither, neither come nor do we go. You're omnipresent. One day you will be walking down the street and suddenly you will sense your own nature everywhere. <gasps> A lot of people have those epiphanies and peak experiences. <gasps> I'm everywhere. That goes away. <gasps> oh, oh my God, that was weird. That was a weird sensation. It came over me. It's neither born nor dies nor reincarnates. How can I di it die? Where can it go? All these heavens and earths and these places are hopeless imaginations of the mind. Kant and others. You go back to these people, they're all working on this stuff. They don't exist, never existed in the past, and never will in the future. What? What audacity this man has. They don't exist, never did exist in the past, never will in the future. It's all our projections. We're, we're projecting things and we're labeling things. Um, Ferdinand de Saussure, he's one of the philosophers that, that deals with knowledge and words and how words play out in societies and how we're defining our lives according to our society. Our society defines us. We're children of circumstances, the three students would say. We're all children of circumstance. And, uh, but we're not. We're all evolving and changing and shifting. So now let's go to the secondary very quickly here, because we built this, the directionality of life and all life forms, the hidden agenda behind the whole creator, creation can be summarized by the words, word mukya, supreme. But nevertheless, in every religion, there's that supreme direction, but they have secondary stages. The secondary stage, the supporting stage, is a devotional practice, devotional practice. Avaidi, formal ceremony, Ceremonies found in all religions it distinguishes one religion from another. Swamiji points out how naturally we love the objects of the senses. We can't help it because they're so real. Ordinarily, we don't see anything real in higher things. See? We don't see anything real in these higher ideals. 
But when someone has, been, uh, has seen something real beyond the universe of the senses, only then can he or she have a strong attachment and it can be transformed to the object beyond the senses, which is God. Senses. This world seems very, very tangible. My eyes, my ears, I can taste it if I want or smell it if I want. It's all very tangible there, but it's a projection. It, it, that, that's a subject, like I say, that needs to be addressed. It can be a subject in a lecture. It's very fascinating. So, in Vedic spirituality, all, seri all ceremonials in the, in the world that have been going on are considered secondary parts or precursors of bhakti or this higher love. Okay? So it's about passing through the concrete. As children learn through concrete experiences first and gradually, their love and their affection opens up. This is, this is, called, this is called structuralism. It's called, uh, what, um, modern psychology, the developmental stages in psychology. Basic stuff. Basic stuff. The immediate family opens out into the town, into the city, the community, and the country, and now the globe. Love always readjusts itself. See? And we're always compelled to let go of the lesser for the larger. But religion is a long still process, gradual. We're all babies. We're little babies in these acts of love. See? But we're compelled to do it. You may say, no, 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 no. That's why I think we need large places, honestly. Because people need a lot of support. The world is so compelling. The sense organs are very compelling. But if you have a big, Catholics are smart at that. In India, they have large temples as well. You need a large place where people walk in. Oh, oh there's a Native American shrine. They sit down there. Hmm. Oh, oh, that's so nice. Look at the beautiful colors there and the pastoral backgrounds. And the Native American, and he's a sage, and he's sitting and meditating. And the heart opens up for that person. Or you go someplace else. But this guy is there all the time. And he's saying, you say, well, we don't need him. No, eclecticism is not where it goes. It ends up at eclecticism. My religion is good. Your religion is good. We're all good. It's all wonderful. It's good. It sounds good. And I honor it. Please forgive me, anybody who's in the interfaith here. But it's just that in and out, you need some personality who embodies it. Who could, and you look at that person and you can see through his life that he actually manifested in his life. So it's a gradual process. A baby polar bear goes up to his dad and asks, Dad, am I a polar bear? Dad replies, sure you are, son. All, are polar all of us are polar bears. My parents are all polar bears. Your mom is a polar bear and your parents are polar bears. Still unsure, the baby polar bear goes to his mom and asks, Mom, am I a polar bear? Of course you are, honey. I'm, I'm all polar bear. Your father is all polar bear. Your parents are all polar bear. And, the par and his parents are all polar bear. Still not convinced, the baby polar bear goes to the grandparents and says, Grandma, Grandpa, am I a polar bear? His grandmother says, of course you are, sweetie. We're all polar bears. Your mother is one polar bear. Your father, your parents are all polar bears. Why do you ask, sweetie? Because I'm freezing. <laughs> I'm freezing. We're like that. Am I the divine? Am I really rooted in the divine? Am I really a divine being, glorious, all-powerful, and infinite? I, but I'm freezing here. 
I'm miserable. See? This is the case. Uh, with formal ceremony, we build a foundation with ceremonial things. See? Foundations. And everybody is unique, and that always has to be honored in different ways. There is a way to do the Vedic ceremony that's universal, by the way. When I was in Atlanta, I was compelled to do the Vedic ceremony. And I did it in English, and Atmarupananda showed me how to do it. And by George, you can universalize it so that it applies to everybody. And then with the skill in Sanskrit, you can do some amazing things with it, probably. The Vedic worship, the basic puja that we have, has universal implications. It's awesome. Vekanan says about fixation. People get fixated, you see, on their ceremonials, on their foundations. They get fixated, and he spoke about this often. People don't want anything new if it's not in the Vedas or the Bible. It's a case of nerves. When you hear a new striking thing, you're startled. It's constitutional. It's much more so with thoughts. The mind has been running in ruts. And to take up a new idea is too much of a strain. So the idea has to be put near the ruts. And then slowly we take it. It's good policy, but bad morality. <laughs> Meaning, we're not really teaching the truth, we're compromising it. But we have to go in that way in order to get it across to people. He's very abstract, and that's what symbols do. We go to the shrine and we think, and we absorb the symbol of love. And it's there, but it's, we're ingesting it without knowing it. Just as we ingest the guitar playing and we open out, but hey, thinking of Christ or Ramakrishna or Krishna or Buddha or whatever over and over again is not an easy thing. Because okay? you're not doing relative generalizations, which we can all do, but the main fundamental primal generalization. <sighs> You're having to move through all the stuff. So there's a lot of deadness at times that comes and resistance to growth. But it's well worth it because you're bringing peace and strength into your life more and more as you keep practicing this. Don't give up your past. That's what the Vedic model says. Embrace, keep your past because that's your strength. That's in your tummy. That's in your guts. But don't. And don't reject others. That's all. And we're doing that now more and more. Chief symbols, pratikas and pratimas, coming near. Pratika means coming near, towards, nearing. Anything that's worshipped as God is a stage. Stars, Vekananda gave the example. If you want to know a star that's very tiny in the sky, it's, you first show a big star near it. Fixing the person's attention on this, then the person is able to see the finer star that's next to the larger one. And when he fixes his attention on that, he's able to see the even finer star that he's supposed to see, right? That's how this works. You can't see God right away just like that. We've got to exercise our love energy or our love muscle. And it takes a long time. And, uh, and um, that's, uh, the opposite of this is like a preacher who's having a hard, hard talk with a backslider of his flock, who's always drinking and seems to end up quarreling with his neighbors with occasional shotgun blasts down the country. Can't you see, Ben, says the parson, that it's not good. No good comes out of this drinking. Well, I sort of disagree there, parson. Actually, it makes me miss the folks I shoot at. <laughs> so it has a double whammy there. <laughs> Pratikas, grades of worship. 
departed spirits. People do all sorts of things. But with Vedic spirituality, they're, 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 they can be classified as steps towards God or the truth. So when you go into a, a very broad place of worship and you sit down at some shrine that speaks to your heart and soul, you sit there and you make space for that image, symbol, see? And you rest in that symbol. And your mind goes away and you come back and you look up and there's the shrine in front of you. And you think again and then you rest and pull back into that symbol. Love, compassion of the Buddha. See? Oh, that's nice. I love that. That's really nice. Compassion. Oh, that feels good. <laughs> it's a deep issue, see, because it's speaking to your Atman. It's speaking to your higher nature. Right? So... Uh, but book worship, we get fixated, fixated always on different things. And that's what the Vedanta says. They're merely pratikas and pratimas. They're just stages along the way. All this worship of Bibles and uh, the Quran, the Torah, the Bible, the this, the that. They, 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 that's the danger. Ministers' talk went on and on. And finally, he paused and asked, what more... My friends, can I say, from the rear of the auditorium came a hollow voice. Amen, preacher, amen. <laughs> That's what you could say. Let's end this. We're being tormented enough. When I was a kid, I used to pray every night for a new bicycle. Then I realized that the Lord, in all of his wisdom, didn't work that way. So I just stole one and asked him to forgive me. <laughs> Get at it. Get right at it. Heck with his morality and waiting for God to do something. And then, then ask for God's grace. And so here are some examples I picked up, answers in books. A young man replies to the Sunday school teacher, after being told that the reason we're here on earth is to help others. Okay. Okay, says one of the students. But what then are the others here for? <laughs> it gets complicated. You get kooky, you see, with books. They, it's just about love, that's all. Really, that's what it all boils down to. Um, so absolute existence, strength, and all these wonderful things. Um, books are very necessary. Vekanon never poo-pooed them, but they're just, they're just on the way, you see. I'm afraid I may be considerable partial, but in my opinion, books have produced more evil than good. They are accountable, and he acknowledged the necessity of books. But he says, they are accountable for many mischief, chiefs, mischievous doctrines. Creeds all come from books, and books alone are responsible for the persecution and fanaticism in the world. Books in modern times are making liars everywhere. Interesting. I'm astonished at the number of liars abroad in every country. This is vacant, an honest appraisal. He, probably, he moved around all these churches at the time. And no doubt there are a lot of good ministers, but there are a lot of them are just out and out liars, probably, whatever, or wherever, wherever he went. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Images. 
Then he went on to images, though. That's, that's the thing. Um, and, and he said that, that, uh, that images are good. They're, they're important. Okay, we're out of time. Here's Bob Hope said, once said about images and, and different religions. He says, I do, I do benefits for all religions. All religions. I'd hate to blow the hereafter on a technicality. <laughs> All right. All right, I'm sorry. Vaikanand is the father of all this. Here, let me just read this. You've heard this, and it's very powerful. And then I'll read Swamiji. It says, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. This is a Buddhist saying. If you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. If you meet the patriarchs or the arhats on your way, kill them too. Bodhidharma was an old, bearded barbarian. Nirvana and Bodhi are dead stumps to tie your donkey to. The sacred teachings are only lists of ghosts, sheets of paper, fit for wiping the pus from your boils. Gross. But you see, the point was the anger of these great sages. Don't get stuck up in stuff like that. Don't let the play, world play on you. You're bigger than the world. That's what this teaches us. Don't leave, follow others. Vaikananda said that again and again. Uh, Vaikananda said again and again. Um, we must, killing the Buddha on the road means destroying the hope that anything outside of ourselves can be our master. That's killing the Buddha, right? On and on. So we're, we're finished. What do the Dvoidists preach? Ultimately, it comes down to that, that light that flickers in our life, that moment of intuition, not Christ or anything like that, but through these exercises and spiritual acts of love, something else bigger enters into our lives, that unity, that ultimate thing in the ba background. What do the Dvoidists preach? They dethrone all the gods that ever existed and ever will exist and place the self, the Atman, on that throne, higher than the sun and moon? See, it's not something foreign to any of us. You get brief moments of this experience, it's just being able to hold it. Okay. The Atman on the throne, higher than the sun and moon, higher than the heavens, greater than, than that, this great universe itself, no books, scriptures or science can even imagine the glory of the self that appears as humanity. The most glorious God that ever was, the only God that ever existed, exists or ever will exist. Therefore, I'm to worship none but myself. Now, that's a delicate issue. How do you worship yourself? See, if we're stuck in the sense organs, we're in, we're, we're in deep trouble. See? Because we're a body and we're a mind, and that's what a lot of the times uh, are alike nowadays uh, with, uh, with the, the, the sense of self-obsession. That's not what he's talking about. He says, I'm to worship myself. In other words, once this intuition builds in our lives, we could sense an ultimate unity. So when we worship others, we're really worshiping our own potential. You honor and love others because you're loving yourself too. Hey. It works. It really works. Um, uh, let's see. Therefore, I worship none but myself. I worship myself, says the Advoitus. To whom shall I bow? I salute myself. To whom shall I go for help? Who can help me? The infinite being of the universe? 
These are foolish dreams, hallucinations. <laughs> After all is said and done, you see, we're there present all the time. And there's where you have to kill the Buddha. But not now. Don't kill the Buddha now. If you meet him on, get down on your knees and, and ask for his blessings. But there will come a point where, as the one guru said, when a person has realization, he and I are now equal. You see, he was my disciple. Now we're saying he's not going to treat me the way he did before. Okay. Thank you. <laughs>